Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP acoustic intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Welcome, welcome everyone to episode 21. I am so happy to be revisiting the topic of EMDR, that is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing in today's episode. I last spoke about EMDR in episode number 14. And out of all the episodes so far, it is by far the most popular. So my goal for today is to help listeners both practitioner and layperson, learn more about the evidence-based EMDR therapy, as well as discover how an integrated EMDR and safe and sound protocol approach may offer an optimal pathway to wellness. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with three amazing clinicians, Jill Hosey, Elisa Fernandez, and Laurie Bellinger all EMDR-approved consultants. Jill, Elisa and Laurie are part of a UNITE EMDR think tank for developing guidelines about implementing the SSP within the EMDR therapy approach. Other members of the team who are unable to attend today include Nicole Black and Marshall Lyles, both also EMDR-approved consultants. You'll gain a deeper knowledge of EMDR therapy in trauma, the polyvagal theory connection and implementing the safe and sound protocol. Each practitioner shares their passion for supporting their client's journey to well-being using an integrated approach of both safe and sound protocol and EMDR therapy. Before we start, a little about my guests. Jill Hosey is a clinical social worker and trauma therapist, who is a founding partner of Healing Therapy Alliance and the Psychosomatic Trauma Initiative in Toronto. She is course director at York University School of Social Work. Laurie Bellinger has been providing services as a licensed clinician social worker and psychotherapist and is located in East Amherst, New York. With her degree in social work, Elisa Fernandez has been providing psychotherapy services in Toronto, Canada. Contact information for all Unite EMDR team members will be listed in the show notes. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for taking your time to share your wealth of information in today's episode. And so today we're going to be talking about um, EMDR, and we're about to unpack what that is, and we're going to be talking about how we would combine a clinical tool like EMDR with the Safe and Sound Protocol. Um, So I have some amazing practitioners with me today, and I'm going to have them briefly introduce themselves and they're going to say whereabouts they are in the country, kind of their background and, you know, kind of how they discovered the SSP, the Safe and Sound Protocol. So, Laurie, if I could start um, with you. 
Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Laurie, and uh, I'm an EMDR therapist and consultant. Uh, I work with both children and adults. Um, my focus is on complex developmental trauma. Uh, I work outside of Buffalo, New York, in the States. And um, I was first introduced to the SSP actually by Elisa and Jill. And uh, found that it was going to be useful um, and very helpful for most of, uh, most of my caseload. So everyone from my young kiddos with regulation issues to my very complex adults with very complex um, trauma histories. So I uh, decided to go on that journey and uh, have been very much a fan <laughs> of promoting EMDR and SSP together ever since. I'm very appreciative of Elisa and Jill for convincing me. Excellent, excellent. Well, welcome. Thank you. And Elisa? Hi, um, so I am in Toronto, Canada. I'm in private practice, um, currently in private practice, but was had a bit of a journey in my career because I've been practicing for 20 years and uh, have been using EMDR for about 10 of those years and uh, came across Safe and Sound Protocol um, through Jill, um, through a wonderful uh, mentor and um, therapist in the EMDR community called Robin Shapiro, who's incredible and has written tons of books. And, uh, and so I've been using the Safe and Sound Protocol in my practice for about three years. And similar to Lori and Jill, I work with um, people across the lifespan. So as young as five um, and work mostly in, in the area of trauma and, um, and work with dissociative disorders. So we have, I think, similar practices and um, I'm also an approved EMDR consultant. Excellent, excellent. So Lisa, you've actually been using the Safe and Sound Protocol then for, for, you know, not long after it was really sort of came available so that's that's wonderful. So just was, did you happen to go to the SSP gathering when they had their first one, or just no? I no, I think Jill did. I didn't, Jill but did. yeah, um, it, traveling is is um, uh, is I have to be creative with traveling because I have four kids. <laughs> so <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, so, but Jill, I you want to jump in and and yes, yes, you went to it, right, Jill? I was, I was actually online. I was supposed to be there, but I was online for that. There was a panel presentation um, and I joined as an EMDR therapist on that panel. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So with that, thank you, Elisa. So Jill, Jill's unfortunately come on with a little bit of a... <laughs> Something. Something happened today. Yeah. So Jill, yeah. Please, please tell us about yourself. So I'm Jill Hosey. I'm in Toronto, Canada as well, alongside Eliza. I'm in a private practice working with people across the lifespan who have experienced trauma, complex trauma, um, and are living with dissociated identities or a dissociative disorder. I've started using the Safe and Sound Protocol in and around the same time as Eliza and was also introduced to it by Robin Shapiro. Um, there's been such an incredible evolution. As you said this at the beginning, I thought, oh my goodness, and the earphones and the, the um, it, cause it's now digital, which makes it so incredibly accessible. 
Um, I consider myself to be an integrative EMDR therapist. I'm an EMDR consultant and an EMDR virtual basic trainer as well with the ISSTD's EMDR therapy training program. And we offer a hybrid training actually for therapists looking to be trained in EMDR. So both virtual and in person. Lovely, lovely. Welcome so much. And I know that we did have a couple of other um, panel because you're part of a special EMDR um, think tank um, for Unite ILS who, and you've put together some amazing tools for um, EMDR SSP um, practitioners or for EMDR practitioners who are looking to actually um, go down that journey of, of using SSP to help support their practice and to have that integrative approach. And, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those resources at the end because they are amazing. You've, you've done an amazing um, an amazing job. And we'll definitely credit your other team members um, for their, their work towards that. So we'll put that in the show notes so that everyone is aware of um, who they were or who they are. Um, and and their contribution to that work. So we keep saying EMDR. Um, so how about, because we have listeners all around the world and some are practitioners and some are just people on that healing journey themselves or people who are interested in polyvagal theory and different topics that we sort of talk about. So what is EMDR? What does it stand for? And talk a little bit about what this amazing intervention is. So, start. Like yeah, I, well, I, start. <laughs> I, I could start and I <laughs> joined in um, because my voice sounds not so great right now, but so EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, um, which we now understand or as a therapy, as opposed to um, a technique, just a technique or an intervention. Um, EMDR therapy is a memory-based therapy that is based on the adaptive information processing model or the AIP model and can be used in incredibly diverse integrative ways to support people who have had experiences or events in their life that are unprocessed and manifest in the present through symptoms, struggles with mental wellness, chronic illness, and injury. Through a lens of EMDR, in fact, it's understood that these struggles with mental wellness, symptoms, chronic illness, and injury are in fact a manifestation of these past unprocessed memories. And through the use of EMDR therapy, we're able to support these memories to come to adaptive resolution where we see symptoms either greatly reduced or eliminated, and we're then freed up to work on neutralizing any triggers or things that became linked uh, to the traumatic event and experience. Any other thoughts? EMDR. And in, uh, um, I was going to say, in the way that I explain it to kids, perfect. <laughs> might be fun. Um, I, when I'm explaining what is EMDR to uh, children and adolescents, I say basically what we're trying to do is we want to get your body and your brain talking to each other. That when difficult things happen, 
we tend to hold on to those things and they just don't process, they don't go down the river of time in the way that they were designed to. And that EMDR gives us a safe and effective way to take a little bit out, let it travel down the river of time, and we get to experience it, you know, in a safe place uh, in the therapy room together. And we get the brain and the body talking. And that this is how we, you know, get results. Nice. It's very simplistic compared to <laughs> a lot less technical kind of way of explaining it, I guess. Does that make sense? Lisa, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, I think that's a beautiful way to explain it. There's so many analogies to use with kids and adolescents, teenagers around the brain, the body, um, being able to digest um, the yucky stuff for very young kids um, and being able to digest it into something that um, where they understand themselves apart from the yucky and the yucky no longer disturbs them. And it feels like it's in the past where it should be. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's a lovely way to explain it. And um, yeah, there's many different beautiful analogies to use uh, in terms of getting um, the past into the past. And that's really what EMDR is about, because a lot of times we experience symptoms and we don't, you know, people are surprised that the symptoms are actually connected to traumatic experiences in the past, because they may not even see it as traumatic because it was normal and it's their normal, um, but yeah, their body is holding on to that pain and it needs to be um, worked through so that the pain is no longer presenting itself in these very uh, varying symptoms. So, yeah. Very nice. And, and Jill, you brought up the, um, the adaptive information processing. So I want you to unpack that a little bit because I know when I was, you know, learning EMDR that 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 a very sort of fascinating sort of concept absolutely yeah um so according to AIP um the theory that undergirds EMDR we in fact all have this incredible information processing systems in our brain whereby we're naturally able to have adverse experiences and think and feel and get support. And our brain is actually able to work through it. And as, as Lori and Elisa have said, digest these experiences so that we know that it happened, but they're no longer distressing. They're no longer triggering. However, according to EMDR therapy, according to AIP, when we experience something traumatic, which is essentially anything that overwhelms our ability to cope, that event and the information that's contained in the event, so the thoughts, the feelings, the actions, the urges, the behaviors, the sensations, in fact, become stuck and frozen in time. And when that happens, those experiences, those events and memories are not able to be made sense of, integrated into our whole self. And in a way, in, in, inside of us, they become separated from all of our other experiences. And so 
I like to think, you know, our brain is constantly taking pictures of things, people, places, things, events, animal, weather, and it's making these linkages between things that may not seem like they have anything to do with one another. And these links, they essentially become triggers. And when we later encounter these triggers, this frozen event, this frozen experience, this stuck experience that was not able to be made sense of because it overwhelmed our ability to cope, it gets activated and it opens up. And as it opens up, what ends up happening is the past floods into the present. And in this moment, it's as though we're actually re-experiencing that event. So the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, urges, behaviors, actions contained in that experience now flood into the present. And so according to AIP, these, these experiences, which are seen as symptoms, are in fact coming from or manifesting from this unprocessed material that was traumatic and overwhelmed our ability to cope. And so AIP hypothesizes that when in fact we target these memories through structured sets of bilateral dual attention stimulation within the context of the eight phase protocol, essentially what we're able to do is we're able to help the brain's natural information processing system to start working and moving again to transmute the memory, the associations are transmuted. And what happens is this experience starts to link in to other adaptive experiences, such as I'm safe now. It's over. Um, there was somebody there to support me. So all of the information that couldn't link up to this frozen information because it was so overwhelming, it just got locked in time. And so According to AIP, um, what we then see through working with the structured eight phase protocol, which again depends on a person's experiences, we're not always going to utilize the standard EMDR protocol in the same way, depending on someone's history. But through the use of the eight phase protocol, what we see is these memories are reprocessed and we see um, a greatly reduced or eliminated symptoms and an improvement in mental health, well-being, self-esteem, functioning, and the ability to connect to the world again. Any other thoughts about AIP? I love the way you explain things, Jill. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. <laughs> I think I think the beautiful thing about the AIP is just how it was it was discovered because Francine Shapiro, who's the founder of EMDR therapy, she, you know, when she, at the time she was working with returning vets and dealing with folks who had experienced trauma. And one day she, you know, she was walking and she was thinking of something disturbing in her own life and she felt calm and she started to think, why the heck do I feel calm when I'm thinking about something disturbing in my life? And then the brilliant thing about Francine Shapiro is she got curious and looked around and noticed that the wind was moving the trees back and forth. So then she began to look at what happens when the eyes are moving back and forth that we're able to be with something distressing and not be overwhelmed by it. And, um, and so 
so I, I love that. And I love telling my clients how it came to be, because I think that captures how we began to look at one, what happens in the brain when there are events that overwhelm us and two, what happens in the brain when there's this movement back and forth. And so EMDR was initially developed as sort of a technique, but it no longer is a technique. It is really a therapy. Um, and, um, and the beautiful things, uh, beautiful thing about EMDR is that we can, as therapists, move organically from one phase to the other, um, depending on our client's history and where they are in terms of their system being able to be with certain experiences, present or past. So yeah, so EMDR is, is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so you, you both brought up the bilateral stimulation and I you know, believe that initially it was to use the, the eye movements. Um, and I understand there's been some, uh, so maybe just talk a little bit about what this sort of bilateral stimulation is and is it always just eye movements and what do we feel is actually happening in the brain that facilitates this, you know, adaptive information processing? So uh, in EMDR therapy, there are many different ways to deliver bilateral stimulation. Um, The classic one is eye movement, but there are many ways to do that. And one of them is tactile, um, especially with kids. Um, These are my old therotappers. I honestly don't use these ones quite as often anymore because now I've gone wireless. Um, I have these wonderful new little ones that uh, link up to my phone (laughs) that I can use an app and control. Um, So this is yet another way and Buzzy and Wuzzy do what it sounds like. They they vibrate and I can control the speed at which they go back and forth, left, right, and also the intensity of the vibration. Um, So I'm able to be very selective about what's comfortable Um, And what I tell kids is I want you to notice it, (laughs) but I don't want it to make it impossible for us to do other things. Um, And so, you know, we'll find that just right kind of level of intensity. And then I can control again, the speed of the bilateral stimulation, depending on whether I'm trying to do some resourcing and calming and installing something like a safe place, um, or if we're trying to move through a difficult piece of material, a difficult little nugget of memory, um, which tends to move a little faster. Um, But that is one of the things that we use. Does anyone else want to jump in and talk about all the many different ways that we can do bilateral and what you think's going on there? There has been an evolution across time with what we know and understand is happening within EMDR therapy. And we have a tremendous amount of research that continues to grow. And where we started was with this idea of EMD, Um, this idea that there's a desensitization effect that's happening as the eyes go in this bilateral movement back and forth. And through time, EMD later became EMDR. Francie noticed alongside those she was conducting research with that there is far more happening than simple desensitization, that there is in fact insight. There are 
uh, therapeutic gains. And there's a generalization effect that happens whereby when you process something early, the effects of the early, the, the processing of the earlier memory has a generalization effect on the later memories. And so EMD became EMDR, where we add, where reprocessing was added in and, and later became EMDR therapy. So a, a whole psychotherapy in and of itself. And we started in this place around the theory of REM sleep, where when we go to sleep, our eyes start to engage in rapid eye movement, whereby there's a whole process uh, whereby our brain is making sense of information and breaking it up. And there very much is a bilateral movement that's happening. Now in EMDR, we're not having a full night of sleep. We may be in a session for 60, 75 or 90 minutes. And so it's this really accelerated experience that may happen across sessions, depending on the person. And the idea here was in facilitating these structured sets of bilateral stimulation these memory networks that were previously isolated and frozen, in fact, expand. And in expanding, they start to link up to other insight information to support the memory to come to resolution, uh, to be to integrate and, and come to resolution. Um, we also have the orienting response that speaks to the ways in which um, bilateral stimulation, in fact, stimulates a parasympathetic nervous system response within us. And so when you call into working memory, this highly charged traumatic experience and the sympathetic nervous system starts to get ready and you introduce the bilateral stimulation, all of a sudden there's an, a different orientation towards it as the parasympathetic nervous system starts to get activated and, and step in. Um, we also have the theory of working memory around um, this idea where we see bilateral stimulation became dual attention stimulus, which is now bilateral dual attention stimulus or dual attention bilateral stimulation. This idea of in a, asking our brain to focus on multiple things at once, so it doesn't need to be bilateral, where in fact, we're able to create some distance from the memory in this sense that there's one foot in the past where we're bringing into working memory this highly charged distressing information while having one foot in the present focusing on whether it's eye movement, whether it's tapping, whether it's clapping, there's all of these different mechanisms and we're able to get closer to that mem to, to the memory network and there's a whole interhemispheric process that occurs um, there is so much research and these are not the only three theories, but my belief is that it's a bit of all of them, that we introduce bilateral stimulation that allow that. So we bring the memory, the, the memory into, into working memory. It, a sympathetic nervous system activation occurs. We introduce this bilateral stimulation. A parasympathetic response occurs. The bilateral movement allows the memory network to expand and to link into other things. And again, we're taxing working memory by introducing multiple stimuli that the brain has to has to focus on all at once, allowing the brain to engage in this highly complex process to integrate. So we're just, we're desensitizing the memory. We're integrating and assimilating the material that's been stored in this 
pathological or maladaptive way while also creating new synaptic connections. So this idea of linking up what was previously maladaptively stored, the adaptive information to create a new neural pathway. So my sense, and again, these are not the only theories we have, is that it's, it's a bit of all of it working together. Thank you. And so you bring up the parasympathetic and the sympathetic system. So I think this segue is lovely into, you know, how do we feel polyvagal theory fits in with um, EMDR? So here you have a trauma therapy that very much talks about bottom-up processing versus top-down. When I first went into child counseling at the start of my career, um, the dominant, you know, kind of thing was, you know, basically cognitive reframes and, you know, you hear phrases like that stinking thinking, you know, (laughs) to try to change your thoughts, to change your feelings, to change your behavior. And when I do trauma trainings with schools, this is part of that turnaround that we're trying to get people to understand, a trauma-informed lens and it being the body needs to feel safe. Then we need to be in relationship then we can go up into the higher cognitive processes. So it's from bottom up. And EMDR as a trauma therapy, very much, you know, it's such a beautiful natural fit with polyvagal theory and that it deeply respects the process of the body. So when we talk about bilateral and I was listening to Jill, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of how I explain it. I'm like, we're going to have one foot in the past and one foot in the present in my office. And this bilateral is going to help you straddle that (laughs) and stay here with me. I need you to be affected enough by the memory that it feels pretty real for you so that we can unpack it and do something with it. But I also don't want you getting lost in there. Um, So it's kind of like a straddle and we want your most, like say if you're an adult client, um, your most adult ability online, while still, let's say, if it was a traumatic thing that happened in your childhood, that very real childhood experience, both in the room together, <laughs> you know, and it's like it holds a bridge together and makes that kind of feeling together. Um, but that's that's kind of how I see it, and why I get so enthusiastic about uh, polyvagal and coming together with EMDR therapy, because I think it's just a a beautiful natural match. I think also too, even before we get into trauma processing and we're in the stabilization preparatory phase of EMDR, we can do a heck of a lot in terms of working with someone's autonomic nervous system. And that's where the safe and sound protocol is so helpful um, because it's able to help people um, connect to their body differently and to get to know their body because a lot of clients that we see are are, have a hard time with their body for uh, various reasons in terms of their experiences that they've gone through in their life and so I think that piece is so important to do even before we go into processing Um, and that's why it's so important to see EMDR as as this therapy and to integrate different pieces in the preparatory phase so the client feels safe enough to be able to have one foot in the present and one foot in the past because the reality is a a lot of our systems could be really in the past and we don't even realize it 
And so that that is um, key work to do before we go into reprocessing or trauma work, trauma processing work in terms of um, working through memories, distressing memories that are impacting us presently. So I, I think a lot of the polyvagal and, and working with the autonomic uh, nervous system is really happens before we even go into trauma reprocessing. As you said. Jill, we'll give you a voice a little break to, to add in on that. So I think, you know, so we know that um, Stephen Porges, who developed the polyvagal theory, also developed the Safe and Sound Protocol. So I think this might be a nice time then now to sort of like, well, how do you feel the Safe and Sound Protocol fits into the EMDR model? Lisa, so, did you? Oh, sorry, Laurie, did you want to? No, it's Okay. <laughs> No, I, was, I, I find that I use it very much in um, the preparatory stage when we're doing stabilization work. Um, I introduce the safe and sound protocol then just so that clients can one become familiar with the connect program with prosthetic sound, sound and what it's like for their system to um, to experience prosthetic sound. And, um, and it also is, I guess it, I use a safe and sound protocol, especially the connect as both a, um, an intervention, but also a little bit of a diagnostic in terms of, are they okay just dipping in just a little bit and, and, and being with that? that sound? What is it like for their nervous system? And with some clients, you have to titrate it because if they've been through a heck of a lot, maybe they can only be with, with um, 10 minutes or five minutes, right? So, um, so you could use it in very creative ways, but I, I find that I use the connect and the core at um, the front end of therapy, so to, so to speak. Because if you see, because um, EMDR, it's an eight phase model, but really it fits within the triphasic model of trauma. And so I use it in, in what we would call the phase one of the triphasic model of trauma. Um, Lori, you want to jump in? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I was Canadian and I'm saying sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I we tend to be mostly um, front loaded with uh, phases one and two of EMDR and somewhat diagnostically. Um, a lot of I'm we'll joke around with folks. I'm very much into being a sensory savvy, you know, therapist. So I'm always looking for sensory related supports, and that was one of the early days things I loved about the SSP. It just made so much sense to me from the get-go that this would be a stabilizing kind of resource. And that's what I found it to be, is that it has assisted me in getting to some of the more difficult processing um, a little bit faster, a little bit safer, a little bit more comfortably for a lot of clients. Uh, and then also on the tail end, I've especially recently uh, repeated the SSP um, at the end of EMDR, so around, you know, phase eight and just sort of consolidating things, I have one client right now who she is currently repeating the SP to see if she can get even more gains out of it. <laughs> um, because Are you she's repeating just the core or the balance, Lori? She is repeating the whole works. She decided ah. that she would very much like to go and go through 
um, the connect, which I let her do somewhat independently. And then she wanted to go through the core with me again, um, as just pieces through you know, the beginning of sessions and work her way through the whole thing again to see if she can't pull more out of it because she felt like it was so valuable um, in helping her get so much more out of EMDR um, that she thought, you know, she'd like to try that. I'm like, I'm game. I think that's the beautiful thing is really to know your client Mm -hmm. and their system and what speaks to them and making these collaborative decisions. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And again, just the caveat, there being space and we don't repeat the SSP immediately or anything like that. But after getting through the full you know, range of EMDR and being in a much better place, um, having a client later saying, I think I'd like to do that again <laughs> and mm-hmm. see, see what happens. So, mm-hmm. yep. Well, also when you think about it, I mean, if we think about, you know, the SSP is, has an accepted patent as an acoustic vagal nerve stimulation therapy. So knowing that that's helping to bring more of that parasympathetic part of our nervous system on, on board. So even for, for us with, you know, nervous systems that haven't been quite as challenged, it's nice to sort of, I know personally, I'll, I'll put myself through programs just for that kind of knowing that I'm bringing that part of my nervous system more alive within me. So I know that I can be a little bit more resilient to, you know, the stresses of life that sort of goes on. So I think even, I think we can even think about it, at least in my mind, I sort of think about it in that sort of way. So to revisit it, even when we've done a whole course of work, like EMDR, I think sort of makes, makes sense as well. Mm -hmm. so Jill did you want to add how you feel the SSP fits in with EMDR or how you've sort of used it absolutely and I I, you know I'm just sitting here reflecting on the incredibly um, integrative vast ways that we can integrate SSP Um, it's not um, one way Instead, we have multiple options. I, you know, in thinking about Elisa referencing the triphasic model and, and looking at phase one as safety and stabilization, if we're thinking through the lens of, of a trauma therapy model, EMDR therapy fits quite easily the phases of EMDR into the triphasic model. And so phase one of the triphasic model or phases one and two of EMDR therapy, where we're looking at getting to know our client gathering history, starting to conceptualize, how do I understand what's happening, which is so incredibly important because it helps us be really intentional around treatment planning, around how may this be helpful? When may this be integrated? You know, what considerations do I need to keep in mind as I'm moving forward? Um, because we can integrate SSP at various different phases of EMDR. And those choices that we make are in fact quite unique and dependent on each client, their inner experience, um, their level of not just negative or uncomfortable affect tolerance, but as well as positive or comfortable affect tolerance, how much calmer ease feels safe enough to be with. And for me, I came to the SSP because I was noticing um, I, I am a massive trigger for many of my clients 
simply by virtue of being a human being. And so here I am coming into this thinking, we're going to do EMDR and, and I'm going to help and do all of these things to support my client and come to healing. And the door's locked. There's, there's, I, I, there's no way in because in fact, but just by being a human being, my client may be depending on their history in different state, in a different state of hyper or hypoarousal, depending on how we're going to conceptualize it. And so I started learning about SSP as an adjunct to EMDR to see how can this support my client to be able to be with me in the space, even if we're not using EMDR, even if we're sitting within a psychodynamic um, approach, you know, how can I utilize this to support my client's nervous system to tolerate being in proximity to me? And so slowly and gently starting to take a look at, you know, what are all the unique different ways within the context of EMDR or not EMDR, that this incredibly powerful tool um, can um, is an adjunct and as well as, as Aliza said, is incredibly diagnostic around affect tolerance and the, the pace by which we're able to move through therapy. I, I think it supports us in being able to align and join with our clients around where they are as we start to gather more information. Um, and it supports treatment planning in or out of EMDR therapy. Very well said. Very well said. So I'm wondering, um, Laurie, would you be interested in sharing, um, you know, a bit of a case of how you've kind of integrated both together? Sure. Uh, would you like a kid case uh, just to mix things up a little bit, or do you? Sure. <laughs> Adult or kid? <laughs> yeah. Whatever. What whatever you'd like to share. Um, one of my favorites that I'll, I'll go back to. Just I'm trying to think here to make sure that I don't uh, don't give too much detail. Um, so I've got a, an adoptive family. I work with a, a lot of kids with adoption histories. Uh, and I've got a, a little boy. And he's one of my favorites when I think about SSP and EMDR coming together, because he has some very serious attachment difficulties with his adoptive family. Um, they've come a beautiful long way. They've learned a ton about uh, trauma-informed parenting. There are all these great supports in place. Really had some ideas around EMDR and things that we wanted to move toward. <laughs> uh, but things weren't safe. Things weren't safe enough. You know, when we talk about phase one, phase two, safety, getting things stable enough in our everyday, not just in the session, but at home. Um, and this was a child who, if something went wrong, they were like zero to 60, you know, so there are little holes in the wall <laughs> at home. Um, and we're, we're going to lose um, residential, you know, being in the same, under the same roof together. And how are we supposed to be on this journey if we can't even live under the same roof together with our family? Uh, so we need it to be safer. And one of the really awesome, amazing games that I saw that the family attributes to the SSP and quite frankly, so do I, is that through going through the SSP process, the mom called me and was all excited because she's like, this is so exciting. You know, he was, 
he yelled at me <laughs> and asked me to come into the bathroom and close the door and told me all about why he was so angry with his sibling <laughs> and how it wasn't right and it wasn't fair. <laughs> and this was so exciting and wonderful because traditionally he wouldn't have been able to give words to any of those feelings. Traditionally, no one would really understand what necessarily the trigger had been and there just would have been physical damage and dysregulation, but he created privacy. He was able to express himself in words and there was no damage. And eventually he was able to come back to a regulated space. So that was a game changer uh, that made it possible to start moving forward and to do um, some attachment work in here using EMDR and some protocols that we have for working on improving attachment uh, with their caregivers. And uh, we've been able to work on a whole number of different things that have traditionally been very dysregulating, um, but we've been able to use EMDR to help bring that down. We've installed calm spaces and I use calm smells um, to help with overall regulation. Um, and, and it has been coming along nicely. And a different case, but a similar kind of kiddo, we actually even got the SSP written into, um, in the US we have something called an individualized education plan for kids with special needs. Yeah. And we actually got written into the plan <laughs> that the child wow. could go down guidance and go listen to the connect music and just have that be part of what they were allowed to do. Um, so yeah, some really fun, cool things are possible with kiddos with the SSP and EMDR together. Beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm trying to get it into an autistic classroom and, and really the bureaucracy is a nightmare. So that's fantastic oh. that it got written into an IEP. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it's only one so far, but it, it has encouraged me greatly that this is possible. Yeah, exactly. Sure. Now, Elisa, I know you need to leave soon, but I was wondering if you um, have a case that you'd like to share or before? Sure, I could bring in a, a couple of different cases and blend them together just so that identifying information doesn't um compromise the client. Mm -hmm. So I've had, so I use it um, with most of my clients and um, I give this example in the resources that you're going to talk about um, probably when I'm off, uh, I'm offline uh, in terms of the guidelines that we created for the integration of safe and sound protocol for EMDR practitioners. And it's a case, um, a client who has um, a complex history of, of trauma. Um, she is an adult client professional and um, er, when she was an adolescent, she was institution institutionalized in a psychiatric, uh, in a psychiatric experience. Um, and it was uh, not a very good experience. And uh, she carries a lot of pain related to that and what brought her into the experience and um, has a lot of sensitivities to sound. And so um, I started working with her and I introduced the, Con uh, the Connect program and I asked her to try it with certain resources being in place because she, this is remote delivery. And so we had 
Um, her environment is safe. She had resources available to her. She was able to cue into her body to know how much is enough. So all of that was done. And, um, and so in between the sessions, she did the connect program. She came into the session. I greeted her. I asked her about her experience and she started crying. And in my mind, I thought, Oh, oh what happened? Like, did split you know, was it too much for her? And she was actually crying with relief because she talked about um, how it was the first time she was able to drive her car and listen to music. And it had been years that, that, that she was able to do that and that she was so elated that she was at a stop sign and, and, and ran around her car dancing and (laughs) and went back into her car and drove to work. Um, And so that's just the connect program. And, and with this client, we're working our way to, to the core program. Um, And there's some stressors that we need to work through to be able to, to do that. Um, and then there's another example of a, a client, adult client, who experienced a lot of trauma early on in life, um, was uh, a parent had a heart attack when when he was he was small, he was maybe he was a toddler. And we don't know um you know, how long he was with his dad before intervention happened, so on and so forth. Um, so lots of sensitivity to sound. And, um, and he did the, the core program. And he's, he's done it maybe three times, but a lot of space in between, because this is a, a long term client. And he came in saying, it's the first time I could wake up to my alarm clock, and not be thrown off by the alarm. Because every morning I would hear the alarm and I would be anxious and now it's not there. And so then we had to do some work around what it was like to not have that anxiety present and how it felt to be present with feeling okay, especially at the start of the day. Um, and so, um, so there's lots of experiences like this with clients where it just opens up the ability to be with positive affect, that it's okay to be with uh, peace, that it's okay to feel at ease. Um, and this is like crucial for, for, for us is even in, you know, the last two years that we've been through um, is to experience feeling okay with being okay. So lots of, lots of examples of that, but I think those two really sort of typify what the safe and sound protocol can offer in the early stages of therapy. Um, and that frees them up to then be able to go through and work through pain um, and then experience the freedom of no longer carrying that pain of the trauma. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So with that, I mean, we certainly get the sense that we know that this is a tool that definitely supports clients' nervous systems for that sort of process. And then we can get more momentum with with EMDR. And that I know you all feel very passionate about that that journey. And so you've developed some some, um, some guidelines. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit about that and Lisa, I know you need to pop out, so please feel free when you, when that time comes to 
Um, I'm going to say bye. Thank you for having, for having me, for having us. And, um, and we'll, we'll touch base again. Yes. Thank yes. You. Thank you. Have a lovely bye, day. Bye. 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 So the guidelines. So the guidelines, the way, you know, I conceptualize them is a set of recommendations and considerations um, that EMDR therapists are encouraged to take um, when considering integrating the SSP into EMDR therapy. And within the context of the guidelines, we offer um, an overview around the why. Why, you know, have we, are we making these recommendations and speaking for myself, um, I've made so many mistakes uh, in terms of how I've gone about integrating it and things that I may not have considered that it felt like, you know, it would be really helpful for us to come together as clinicians and EMDR therapists and consultants and propose some of the things that we've learned um, in integrating the SSP into EMDR. And so it looks at the why and it looks at different cons important considerations to take phase by phase when you're considering integrating the EMDR, different um, clinical considerations, um, the importance of assessment and screening of different pieces as you're moving into EMDR or really any therapy for that matter. Um, and the importance of really starting to understand and get to know our clients and being um, really um, intentional in, in why we're making the choice to integrate the SSP. Is it just, you know, to integrate the SSP just to do it? Or is there a reason for this? Is there something that's going on for my client that the SSP may be really, really, really incredibly helpful as an adjunct? Um, by and large, I think it actually is helpful for anybody. Um, and, you know, if I'm going to consider integrating it, when and how? And why? And what's guiding my clinical decisions? And what are the little things I need to keep in mind or I need to look for or I need to plan and prepare for as we're moving forward? And by no means is it um, fully exhaustive. I think as we continue going and we keep learning more, the guidelines are going to expand as well. Um, but it's a starting place uh, for EMDR therapists to start considering um, how to be really mindful and thoughtful about its integration. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think you've all done a lovely job. And I think that's what's so nice about EMDR. And I think for people who are listening, who, um, you know, for practitioners who have not, you know, added EMDR to their therapy toolbox, um, I know through starting that sort of journey myself, there is quite a lot of th theoretical model. There's a lot of structure to, to the the you know, the, the therapy, the approach, uh, thinking in terms of the assessment and then the intervention phases. So, and then there's a lot of guidance and support. So even as you go through, there's a lot of sort of, you know, going through getting that sort of clinical supervision to ensure that, that you have a knowledge base and skill set um, to, to implement the therapy, therapy in, a, in, a, in a skilled or effective or therapeutic outcome. So it's a... Yes, yeah, so it's 
it was yeah I've really enjoyed my personal sort of journey and learning learning about I love learning lots of different um, interventions I also you know I have my biofeedback certification and so I just love learning and I just loved learning about India so I think for um, so would you have any comments for therapists who are thinking about um, learning EMDR? Laurie, did you want to add? Uh, my personal opinion is just, you know, looking for really high quality training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my personal preference is that, you know, be EMDR approved, uh, you know, high quality training uh, to take the time to really use consultation. Uh, even though I am at this point uh, a consultant myself, I still seek out consultation uh, with advanced practitioners when I run up against something where I'm like, huh, I could really use someone else to bounce this, you know, with, you know, pros, cons, weighing risks. Uh, so, you know, EMDR is a, a lifelong journey in terms of it's, it continues to grow and evolve. I highly recommend anyone who becomes trained in EMDR also deeply dives into the world of the somatic um, polyvagal theory among one of the most important things to learn about and also ego state therapies as being incredibly valuable um, support in trying to uh, really get the most out of this therapy model. And the guidelines for putting EMDR and SSP together, we've often talked about is just providing helpful guardrails that um, EMDR therapy and the SSP, neither one are self-driving vehicles. <laughs> you know, it's there's a lot of clinical discernment um, and we're not the end all be all in our suggestions, but we're hopeful that through our own, like Jill said, we've all made our own like, oh, I wish I had done this instead of that, um, as we've been learning to integrate these two very powerful things together. Uh, we want people to be able to do it effectively, but most importantly, safely. Very well said. Excellent. So in um, closing up, you know, I know I'd asked to sort of see if you had any some amazing resources to share with uh, your listeners. So I think, Laurie, I know you said that you had some books there you wanted to share. Yeah, I love books. <laughs> I love books. Um, I spend entirely too much of my budget on books. <laughs> <laughs> I get complaints about all the time. Um, I, and I mispronounce names. So apologies to any authors that I mispronounce. Uh, Ariel Schwartz. Um, I think she is awesome and amazing. And she, she and Barb Mayberger, am I pronouncing that right, Jill? Do you know? Um, EMDR therapy and somatic psychology. Um, this is a wonderful, wonderful book. So if you want to learn a little bit more about if you're an EMDR therapist and you want to take a deeper dive into more body-based uh, ways of implementing it, that's a great one. Um, this is brand new, uh, Polyvagal Theory and the Developing Child. Uh, systems of care for strengthening kids, families, and communities. So, uh, you know, to become more familiar with polyvagal theory, and this has been a helpful one for trying to explain things to um, teachers. Like I said, I spent some time working with school districts, and uh, this has very helpful language (laughs) in explaining things uh, to the education community. And, oh, this one's really, really cool. Can I share one more? (laughs) 
Jill, uh, I don't know if you've had this on neuro, neurobiological foundations for EMDR practice. Yuri. Uh, by Yuri. By Yuri. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love this book. This is I not know. an easy read. No. <laughs> this is not a comfortable read, um, but it is fascinating. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, really brilliant. And uh, so if anybody really wants to geek out on the science, this is fun. <laughs> so those are my my three suggestions. I love it. I love it. I'm a bit of a neuroscience <laughs> geek, so I think I'll be, when we get off the ordering that one. Thank you for sharing. About you, Jill, do you have anything that you've, your book said? Uh, I'm going to move over to the side for a second. So one of the things that I think is so incredibly important for any EMDR therapist, despite the fact that we may not always be engaging in standard protocol, is really get a solid grounding in standard protocol. Again, not because we're always going to use it, but because when we have a deep understanding of standard protocol, we have a greater understanding of how to organize ourselves, um, how to, you know, when something is not working in the way that we've been taught it is. It's really important data and information and supports us to make clinical decisions around adapting, modifying, and deviating. And so a solid grounding in standard protocol pr to provide a pathway to navigate um, different complexities, experiences, and symptoms and presentations. So I recommend Francine's uh, most recent 2018 text as a go-to. Um, I recommend an EMDR therapy primer by Barbara Hensley. For anyone that works with kiddos uh, and youth, I recommend Ana Gomez's uh, EMDR therapy and adjunct approaches with children and youth. Wonderful. Love this. Uh, Francine Shapiro's new notes um, from the HAP program which can be found online. And finally, um, a different text, but so incredibly helpful, co-written by Debbie Korn, uh, an EMDR trainer and consultant, as well as um, someone with lived experience, not Debbie's client, but someone else who's gone through EMDR therapy. It's called Every Memory Deserves Respect. And it's a wonderful read for people who want to understand EMDR therapy from both the clinician and the lived experience perspective. So I really recommend these texts as resources as therapists are on this never ending journey of coming to learn and understand EMDR therapy and how it fits and complements um, within the world of, of you know, psychotherapy, psychodynamic therapies that have been around for years and years. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And with that, I just want to add that, you know, just the fact that EMDR has been around for, for many years as well and that it's been endorsed by some pretty well-known organisations. So you're going to know better than me, but I know the World Health Organisation um, endorses EMDR and there's some other big organizations in the states I believe yeah absolutely so we have we have treatment guidelines and endorsements so treatment guidelines for the treatment of PTSD so Australian guidelines for PTSD uh, the ISTSS so the International Society for this uh, for traumatic stress studies 
um, the APA, so the American Psychological Association, as well as the American Psychiatric Association, the WHO, SAMHSA, and we have various endorsements um, that endorse EMDR therapy as effective, um, efficient, and rapid for the treatment of, let's call it simple PTSD, um, by you know, so the United Kingdom's uh, National Health Service, so the NHS, um, the United States National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. So there's all of these different both endorsements and treatment guidelines that speak to how effective EMDR therapy truly can be, whether we're using it as an entire psychotherapy, whether we're using it as an adjunct approach, whether we're utilizing an EMDR protocol, um, yeah. Mm. So if you're listening, this is something you need to learn, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> essentially. And then we just know, you know, obviously your journey in learning polyvagal theory, it is one of those theories that not one text is, is, is enough, that you kind of need to hear it in lots of different sort of nuances. You know, you can hear, um, you know, Paul just speak and then you can hear him give lots of different presentations and you pick up something new each, each time. And, and I think as, as we've talked about today, polyvagal theory just brings that, that understanding of the body underneath, the, you know, the autonomic nervous system and what's happening in the body. And then if we, you know, understand and support that, then it helps our therapy progress um, with more with more momentum. So thank you for sharing, Laurie, those other um, books that expand a little bit more on polyvagal theory. And I'm sure that we're going to be getting more books that are going to come out about the Safe and Sound Protocol um, um, as well. So is there any last parting comments you'd like to share with, with listeners at all? You've both done amazing. Oh, thank you. No, I just want to honor all of the people that have contributed to the guidelines. Um, you know, Lori, Eliza, Nicole Black, who's not able to be here with us, Marshall Lyles, who's not able to be here with us, and Unite and ILS for their support and their vision and all of the incredible work um, that's being done to support people to heal and reconnect awesome. to themselves, others in the world. Yes. Yes, well said. Thank you so much. Well, I want to thank you again for your for your time and for this discussion today. And um, yeah, it's been lovely to to meet you. And um, I'm sure that we'll all get to connect again um, down the track. So thanks. What a wonderful group. I hope everyone really enjoyed this episode. I'm excited about my next guests. I will be speaking with Drs. Rachel Sharman and Michael Nagel to talk about their new book called Becoming Autistic. In their book, they discuss research about the impact of device use in developing autistic traits. To contact me, the best email is joanne at integratedlistening.com.au. Yes, this is a different email, but it is my main working one, so it's easier for me to monitor. I love to hear your comments or feedback, so please send me a message. Please join our private Facebook group called the Safe and Sound Protocol Podcast, a polyvagal informed therapy for new learning and often I post uh, new research. If you like this episode, 
it would be a great honour if you could share it with a colleague or friend. So take care. Remember to breathe low and slow and smile. Joanne. If you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au. And for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com. I'm just going to do one last one. <clears throat> If you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au. And for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com.